Thank you for tuning in to Right Size Security with Simon Gibson and Steve Ginsberg. If you like this episode, please check out the other episodes in this series and go to gigaohm.com to find more of Simon and Steve's research and insights. Welcome to Right Size Security, the podcast where we discuss all manner of infosec from enterprise security to practical security that any business can use, all the way to end user security. Your hosts for Right Size Security are me, Simon Gibson, longtime CISO. And me, Steve Ginsburg, former head of operations and CIO. For this episode of Right Size Security, we're discussing bug bounties, penetration testing, and some of the tools used to conduct them, and why this important field of information security is so nuanced. We're going to walk through the ins and outs of this topic and explain some of the pitfalls enterprises should keep in mind before embarking on a bug bounty or penetration test, or pen test as it's known, and we'll um, get into some of those details. Thanks for listening to Right Size Security. So those who listen to the podcast know we always start with some short topics, and uh, I wanted to start uh, this week first with just a quick follow-up. Last week, we talked a little bit about voting machines. I brought up uh, kind of the interest in a standard for secure voting machines, Uh, and I questioned a little bit out loud, well, there must be some work uh, done in this field. And I just wanted to follow up quickly without going into all the detail, but that there are organizations, of course, that are engaged in this. So uh, some quick Googling brought up the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, which is actually a very wide uh, mandate organization with 57 countries, including the US and Canada, in addition to European nations, uh, so North American nations as well. Um, And they definitely look at uh, voting security and election security security in general. Um, Also, uh, in the U.S., a reminder, uh, some folks will know, that it's actually voluntary testing guidelines that are produced, uh, which I thought was interesting. So the companies do have to do, and this will uh, lead a little bit into some of our topics today, you know, there are requirements for disclosure and testing, but it's still there's voluntary and look like multiple standards. Uh, So just thought that was kind of interesting. And there's also another uh, international nonprofit called the National Democratic Institute, or NDI, which it did not look like the U.S. was a member, according to their website. But they had some very clear uh, type of standards, which was really what I was thinking about, like requirements for transparency and uh, was looking more at sort of the overall technical uh, requirements for a good voting system guidelines in that right. regard. So, um, so just interesting topic and uh, one that hopefully we'll see in the same way we'd like to see corporate security improve overall in right. all locations. Uh, I'd love to see voting machines continue to just get more and more rock solid and yeah. as much as it can. Yeah, no I, you think that you know a, a government I, again? I, I, it, it is you know part of our democratic system, so it is very sort of intertwined with the government. That we you know the postal service is very key to our democracy because if the mail doesn't run, people can't absentee vote. And, you know, I think for it being as inter- integral to our country, FIPS or common criteria like standards or NIST standards around voting machines that are mandatory uh, and transparent, you know, is probably a good thing. Yes. And and NIST, in fact, does play a role in the, in the U.S. government standards for voting. Nice. Uh, and then uh, on the corporate side, um, there's an interesting uh, write-up, uh, I saw some of this uh, today, I guess, on ongoing uh, issue, uh, which is that a security um, research 
researcher found uh, what looks like a pretty significant problem with Zoom, with the mm. conferencing system. I, I saw that go by. I saw that Zoom had a problem with their video um, and the privacy around the camera when you're in the middle of a Zoom meeting being turned on and off. And, and you know, I, I do the thing I think maybe more researchers do than they care to admit is I, I thought, well, I have, uh, you know, tape over my cameras all the time. And so I'm sure it's a problem, but uh, my cameras are taped and, you know, I, I'm generally pretty cautious around any kind of webcam. Um, and, and, and so uh, I, I did not uh, dive into it much. Yeah. So, yeah, I've similarly opted for the sliding plastic door. And mm -hmm. there are times when I thought, well, perhaps I'm being a little overly paranoid. But I also thought, no, nope, I think it's probably likely that at some point, uh, you know, I think a couple of the concerning things that raised to me there is uh, it looks like and, and uh, I think Zoom's a great company. The product is excellent. Just to, to be clear, I'm, I'm actually a supporter overall. Same, same. Uh, however, uh, it sounds like they're uh, running a website to get the sort of automatic magic feature of being able to join a meeting. Like, a, web, like a little web server running yeah, on the local that machine? that runs on the client, right? Yeah. And that, it looks like, can be exploited uh, that the, the researcher was, was able to show. Um, and then there was a little bit of a concern, I'd say, from the path, too, that there's a note in the timeline that at a certain point um, he was uh, notified, the researcher, that the security engineer was on vacation. Uh, and I when he reported the vulnerability. Yeah. And I think security engineers should absolutely be able to take vacation, but ideally there should be enough security researchers that something that looks as serious as this turned out to be, uh, that a company can move quickly towards resolve and really shouldn't take a delay uh, for, for staff outage. So I think that just goes under our general theme that we, we've been on about, that companies need to figure out how to provide excellent security. Uh, and hopefully with each one of these events, you know, enterprise listeners and people responsible for these programs uh, will continue to have more fuel to improve them. So interestingly, Steve, with Zoom, um, there isn't a way that I was able to find Googling around, and albeit I spent five or six, 10 minutes on it, to report a vulnerability. Um, there is no responsible disclosure program. There is no, uh, you know, they don't have a portal uh, and any kind of a policy or framework to let you submit a problem if you happen to find one. Bug bounty program aside, just if you are just a user of the service, um, I, I expect as a as a paid member or even you know in, perhaps inside their licensing portal you can file a support ticket and someone will get back to you. But in terms of the engineer, you know, getting a reply or security engineer isn't in. I, you know, I honestly am just not the least bit surprised that that's their answer. It's unfortunate. It's a twenty five billion dollar market cap company, but. Yeah, it, and it really leads into our topic perfectly today, where we're, you know we're looking at you know how how companies should structure their pen testing and bug bunny and have a program that's robust and really improves their overall brand and the the brand experience uh, and the product experience, and then also really leverages the large security community that's out there. Yeah, yeah, very topical. So let's get at it. Let's get at bug bounties and pen testing and sort of the values and the differences between the two. First of all, I think that's an important one. Sure. Uh, why don't I let you do the definition? Sure. I'm, uh, I, you know, I think it, it's helpful to understand a little bit, uh, you know, a, a penetration test is or a bug bounty kind of, they, they have the same, the same sort of goals. They want to do the same things. Uh, they go about them very differently. And, and I think the nuances in that are things that are the important ones that enterprises understand. Um, you know, I, my sense is that bug bounties 
be, began my my earliest sort of recollection of bug bounties was probably sort of partially based in the open source world with things like Apache uh, and Linux kernels uh, and FreeBSD. And then the first commercial sort of version probably was started at Microsoft and it was still arguably the best in the world um, where they needed a, a method for Microsoft uh, Windows end users to report vulnerabilities. Um, and, and so that, that's, I think that's sort of how they got going. Yeah, there, there was a period uh, in the not so distant past where security was actually looking to, it, it could have been something that would sync Microsoft uh, operating systems, right? For a while, there were just so many Windows security uh, that certainly those of us in the Unix community uh, felt a, a vast difference. Yes. Uh, but sadly, I have to say that over time, then there, there were later some exploits in Unix at the core that were discovered yes. uh, that really took uh, away some of the bragging rights uh, that, I, that Unix would have but, some very significant problems there too. I mean, I think security aside, just shelving it for a second, I think, you know, it was the ubiquitous Windows desktop and the fact that if a bug happened on one, it happened on all. So yes. that means the entire world affect the entire enterprise, you know, every system and every company everywhere, apart from, you know, the Unix machines or the SCADA machines or the, you know, the, the mainframes where there were everybody had that problem. That's right. And it may, it makes it the thing to target for, for most of the folks who want to target anything because it's also the opportunity is really there. Yeah. Right? Good, good aside. The, sort of chief security officer at Microsoft, a guy called Dan Gear, who founded At Stake, I think was at Microsoft a very short amount of time when he made that public statement and was fired promptly for saying that, um, that exact thing. That for, exact... for saying that they were the big target. Yeah, absolutely. yeah. absolutely. Absolutely. Went and founded a company called At Stake. And um, yeah, but that's another story. For pen testing and bug bounty, really, it's it's a way of 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 setting some boundaries and some guidelines about how to report things. With penetration testing, I think that probably sprung up more out of the need for um, uh, working within a big company in an enterprise. You know, and a penetration test, it, you know, if you hire someone to pen test, you hire a company and you bring them in, or you build a group of employees. Either way, it's very much the way companies are used to doing business. There's a master service agreement there's a contract, there's an NDA, there's, there's legal teeth around it. You know, there's a scope, there's terms of service, there's not to exceeds, there's timelines, there's a set of deliverables and all those things, you know, big companies don't do things unless it's going to add some sort of value. So somebody somewhere has calculated a value. Yeah. In our last episode, we talked about SIMs and situational awareness that a security team can build themselves. And of course, security teams can do their own pen tests, and we should talk about that, internal pen tests. Uh, but when you move to want to leverage uh, other organizations uh, to help you out, um, this is a great way to do it. And I think both provide pretty powerful models. Yeah. Yeah, I think it, it is definitely, it's a question of the, the, the duration, the focus, and the level of comfort. Uh, and we can definitely talk about those. Um, so the next kind of big important thing with, with this with this topic, pen tests or bug bounties are ranking vulnerabilities and scoring them. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things you had asked me when we were looking at this was maybe to share a little bit from the CIO's perspective of, you know, how do you go into this? Why do you go into this? Um, and 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 what are the concerns that, that are going to happen? And at least one of them is going to be, well, we've got a lot of different security issues potentially, you know, if you have a complex product, right? And I think the examples we gave up front, you know, both in voting and in the corporate world say, you know, over time, 
all digital code is probably exploitable, mm -hmm. right? Maybe some things are so simple they're not. But generally speaking, if you have any complex uh, organism on the digital side, there's going to be some way to pry it open at, at some point, even if overall you have good experience. So I think, you know, looking at that landscape and really being able to pull out priority, that's one of the things that, you know, as I came to understand it myself and when I've talked to peers, you know, as a executive sponsor of that or somebody who's going to be responsible for that program uh, being financed and, and being undertaken, you know, knowing that there's going to be a value return for, mm -hmm. I, I don't really want to just find a million trivial things that we're not going to fix. Exactly. And putting a rating system or a ranking system on a vulnerability discovered helps you then measure the the risk to your business, the risk to it being discovered, the reputational risk, the, the availability risk, the risk of data being exposed, all those kinds of things. So it's important to understand the ranking system, uh, common one is called CVSS, uh, Common Vulnerability Scoring System. It was developed and it effectively measures the impact of a vulnerability against criteria like availability. Is this vulnerability going to take down the system? Uh, it, it measures the vulnerability's risk to uh, exposing confidential information and it, it measures it against uh, exposing uh, the data to reliability information. Can you trust the data? Yeah. So those are sort of the three main criteria. And you others. mentioned well before, but it may be worth reminding, is those things can be different uh, depending on the organization and depending on what area of an organization that is. So for example, confidential information, uh, there's different types of confidential information and some might be considered much more of a business risk. Uh, than others. For example, HR data is an example you've given in the sure. past where, of course, you never want that exposed, but it might not be as business critical depending on what it is as customer data, for example. Right. Where or exposing C code or exposing certain things and, and you know, inner workings of applications that would then lead to more sophisticated attacks, right? So you, there, there's all sorts of, there are nuances in that as well, um, but th those are sort of the three main things. And, and then there's a few others in terms of it, but being able to measure your vulnerability is super important. And, um, you know, the, again, like to your point, if you're going to do these programs, you're going to run these programs, you want to understand what the value of actually implementing them is. And then I think, you know, you'd brought up earlier getting, you know, what kind of trouble are these going to cause? Are we going to, are, are things going to get taken down? Are things going to break? Yeah. All, you know, all the conversations about uh, modern companies involve the rapid uh, rate of change and, and, you know, the increased uh, business responsibility for companies to keep delivering quality product. And so anything that's going to be interruption of either teams that are developing uh, or teams that are meant to secure or operate the organization, you know, that has to be factored. So on the one hand, there's very high value in uh, discovering any potential exploit and the trouble it can cause to availability and, uh, and company rep reputation. Uh, on the other hand, one has to be careful that they're not just creating uh, busy work yeah. uh, or disrupting quality work, even if it, you know, yep. for a valid reason, right? Yep. Um, you know, the other, the, one of the things that I think companies don't really understand until they start grapp grappling with these is embarrassment. Um, uh, if a vulnerability is found, doesn't matter if it's through a pen test or, a, or an end user reported it or an engineer found it. Uh, if a company realizes they have a critical vulnerability um, and they need to patch it and inform customers about this, 
that that you know, I think in the world where there's apps and app updates and just people take rolling security patches all the time, there's a little bit less of a of a you know worry around that because people are you know they're used to getting security updates and 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 it just happens and you don't really need to explain a lot about it. And in, in a world of uh, you know in, where there's routers or there's you know data conduits and and you know optics, what you know whatever the the the, the thing is. Uh, to tell your your biggest customers, you know, your $10 million customers, oh, we have this really risky vulnerability in your core networks, please patch this. That's a, you know, you, companies have to be ready to bite down on the rag and do that. Sure. You know? It's it's not a happy discussion at that point. Uh, but I think also, you know, folks who are doing vendor management within any organization, they're going to look to, are my partners responsible about these things over time? How do they respond to these bits? And so to your point, I think there is a great understanding that security risk happen, happen yeah. and but companies that don't manage it well do get managed out yeah and i think that we were you know we had a section about partner supply chain risk and 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 i think that that goes absolutely to, i think companies really have to sit down and think at an executive level you know do the benefits of me you know patching this vulnerability telling my customer it's a critical you know is there a risk that they are going to leave you know, leave, you know, stop buying from us. They're going to not renew their contracts or are they going to look at us and think we're a good partner? And are we really building credibility with them by coming to them ahead of a vulnerability being disclosed, which is another super nuanced part about this as well. Yes, and having their operational story very clear. Uh, We've had engagements in the past where there might be a security issue or a reliability issue. And then in calls diving it into the company, it was clear that their folks actually did not have a clear vision of what was happening. In other words, some of the some of the discussion about remediation or possible uh, steps to mitigate problems were not accurate. And yeah. so, so really understanding, you know, what, and in, you mentioned cloud security, as we were talking about this too, you know, in a cloud world that becomes potentially more difficult, which is a lot of companies are leveraging cloud for vast amounts of their infrastructure. And those that are doing it responsibly will understand uh, what are the, the significant portions of all, you know, what are the implications of all that right. and the detail. And those that don't will potentially be in a place where they can't enforce good security or good security response. Well, I, mean, I think that's a good place to sort of rip apart responsible disclosure and coordinated disclosure. Um, so in the world of, you know, telecom and, and routing and, and large interconnected systems, if a vulnerability is discovered that can potentially affect the internet at, at large, uh, there's sometimes the notion of a, of a coordinated disclosure where the people who go, who fix it, who are responsible for maintaining these get together, get released a patch ahead of it being public. They go patch all the things and then the vulnerability is disclosed and then everybody else runs behind and patches, but the, the core stuff is done. And, and that's the real nuance, which is, you know, this vulnerability can be discovered whether or not you have a vulnerable, you have a disclosure program, right? This, this will come out if somebody finds it, or it's going to be sold and kept quiet and used on the black market as a zero day and sold, you know, for potentially a lot of money, depending on what kind of vulnerability it is on what platform and what reliability, you know, how, how reliably it triggers. Right. And it also brings up for me, um, you know, there's the immunity of the herd and communities can be very uh, helpful in security. Uh, and so just, you know, kind of a call out there that, you know, enterprise teams and people who are running security programs in any way, 
you know, your security uh, leaders and your IT leaders, they should be talking to other folks at other companies, at other organizations yeah. about what they're seeing for security, well, what, what, how, what they're doing to, to improve their programs. And, but even if they're busy guys and they're not doing as much of that as they should, they should have a really good understanding that if a vulnerability is discovered and it's brought to their attention, they now have guilty knowledge. That yes. if this is disclosed and their customers, you know, if it was disclosed by someone other than them to their customers, that's probably worse than it being disclosed by the company that found it, right? Absolutely. Right. Um, all things to keep in mind. Again, this is one of, this is such a nuanced space. I love it uh, just because specifically of that. Um, so we sort of talked about why they're different uh, and we talked a bit about cloud. So let's get into sort of what are the things you need to do to get a, you know, a, to start doing pen tests repeatedly, reliably, or, you know, do a, open a bug bounty or at the very least a responsible disclosure program, which in the case of our, you know, our opening topic, Zoom, they didn't seem to have one. Right. So w one of the things that's at the start is the executive sponsorship. And I, I alluded to it before, but uh, as we talked about earlier, it, it's, it's a very important piece, which is you're going to create this program and there are multiple ways to go about it in terms of, you know, what outside parties you use, how you leverage kind of the outside community and your own teams to do these things. Um, but when you raise issues, we talked about resourcing and then you, we talked about priority. Um, how are you going to make your way through all that? Yeah. Uh, it's great when direct contributors can just work that out on their own, but they really need a frame, framework, as we talked about, to, to make that work. And then if they have conflict where they're not sure how something's going to, whether work will be prioritized or how uh, what approaches should be taken, they need to be able to escalate that through management leadership. Right. And if there's not a clear path, you can get gridlock right there. Yeah, I mean, that, that for sure, any well-meaning CISO can put a security at their company and you know, a little bit of indemnification, which we'll talk about in a second and, and, and start sort of a program, but, but, but what happens to the, to the product when there's a real critical vulnerability and now you have to bring in the general counsel and the CEO, and they have to make a decision about how they talk about it, whether, you know, what, what they tell their customers, what they tell their board, it, it does need executive sponsorship. And also because if people are going to spend money and hire engineers, or they're going to take engineers off other projects to work on this, there needs to be some value. So somebody needs to work out what the value is in having a vulnerability disclosure program. How much does that add to uh, you know, the QA process or hiring a pen test. They're not cheap. You know, pen tests can be many hundreds of thousands of dollars, depending on the scope and the time and who you're hiring. Um, so, you know, what is the actual value proposition from the, rep you know, is it reputational risk? Is it you need to be seen to, you know, by your shareholders and board as having done these things? Are you doing M&A? Are you buying a company? And do you want to pen test their code and see how they are and before you actually sign the deal or give them a term sheet? So there's, there's a million reasons why these things have value, but a company needs the executive leadership to really work that out. And I think the CSO and the CISO are the guys that can do a good job explaining it if they understand the space well. Yeah, I mean, M&A is a perfect example. There's certainly lots of cases about uh, companies having been acquired and then greater security risk been uh, discovered after the fact, uh, which is certainly a, a pretty big business risk if you, you're the one who have done the acquiring and the asset you have doesn't have the value that you thought yeah. uh, because there are security security or, risks present, for example. Yeah, or yeah. loses value right after you bought it because some, you know, some disc, something was disclosed, some vulnerability in some piece of medical equipment was and you were shorted. Um, so, you know, the other thing, again, apart from just the reputational aspects and the executive sponsorship for a program, 
a legal framework is something that you need to understand really clearly before you start wading into pen tests and and uh, bug bounties and disclosure programs. Yeah, so you know, certainly for disclosure, you know, there are, uh, I believe, national and certainly there are state laws which might be different than uh, than your overall commitment. I know in California there's strong disclosure laws, yep. uh, for example. So there might be some real uh, important actions that you're going to need to take. Your legal team and then your operational team, as a result, need to be clear about what those are. Right. Right. And I think it's important. We use this word disclosure sort of interchangeably in that sense. You know, in the one sense, there's the company disclosing that they have had a breach and notifying the people that that varies from state to state. There's a disclosure policy uh, that needs to sort of be around uh, what you will disclose to the community at large, what you're willing to expose about how your company works and what, you know, what happened. And and also uh, a disclosure outbound to the researchers who are in the bug bounty about what you have in scope. And you have disclosed, these are the rules of the road. If we're going to do a bug bounty or a pen test, this is the scope around it. And so there's a disclosure piece around that as well. So it kind of goes both ways. And the word disclosure is an awfully, you know, it's a, it's a very large word. It encompasses a lot of things. Right. It's easy to just say the time when you're going to say something, but, yeah. uh, but right. It has some very specific context in, in, in this world. Yeah, it's definitely, it's very contextual uh, in how you use it. You know, the the legal framework around DMCA and computer fraud and abuse is another important thing. And this goes into the executive sponsorship and the executives need to be made aware of this. If I open a bug bounty, take for example, you know, Simon Widgets does a, does a project and we're like, okay, go ahead and hack it. So I'm protected by DMCA and computer fraud and abuse. So that if somebody hacks into my company, I can prosecute them. And you, you know, that's why you don't just see people attacking websites. And and oh, I've hacked a website. You know, no, you're going to jail. You have hacked a website. If you've hacked a website as part of a bug bounty, somebody has indemnified the work that you've done. Otherwise, you're a hacker, and that's against the law. It's, it's a really important thing. So when you do decide to indemnify, are you risking bringing in a hacker? And you're just now you can't sue them. Now you've given them a a, a legal uh, a legal cover. Um, exactly. Yeah, and and you know, just this may be obvious, but just you know, part of the sort of framework to get involved with having a bug bounty in the first place is, you know, those of us who are involved in security know that you're basically seeing automated, uh, you know, door latch attacks. Yeah. Constantly. That's a good, that's a good analogy. Sure. Yeah. Constantly. Right. People yeah, are checking door for, rattling. For, 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 for an open, for an open piece. Yep. And, um, you know, at the heart of it, it's a good example that the bug bounty is really about taking an expert community and saying, okay, I will provide you a, a lane in where we will share back. Uh, and, and you know, when you mentioned disclosure, you know, one of the problems about not having a bug bounty program in place is what if you do get a responsible uh, request mm -hmm. from a security researcher who's found something Security researchers and and hackers, there's a wide range, of course, of personalities out there, right? And so, um, you know, you're going to have folks who are really the bad guys, and they're just going to try to get in and do whatever, and their approach to you is going to be whatever that is. Right. Um, but you really have, you know, very concerned, responsible security researchers, and some of those are independent folks who they do view it as a real legitimate job in their world. And so they're going to want to be compensated but you, you or at least recognized. Want, yeah, it, that's right. It can be different depending on what, but you don't want to have to do everyone as a one-off situation. Yeah. You're going to want it fixed. You're not going to be, you know, if, if I have a piece of software, especially if I'm paying for it, I want to notify the company, you know, there's a problem. I, I can exploit this. You ought to get it fixed. So there's definitely a sense of urgency, but you know, at the end of the day, um, whether or not you have that program, bugs can drop, 
people will announce those things. You know, even if there isn't a secure at company or a vulnerability disclosure program or a bug bounty, um, the, the, you know, people can just announce it. Uh, you know, Google has a pretty strict product, you know, policy with, with their, uh, with their project zero day, with their zero day project, which has done a lot to, um, find bugs in software. They actively research and will let the companies know they have 90 days to respond and fix this. And if they don't, they go public. And, you know, and, and, you know, I think if the companies are really working hard to fix it, they'll, they'll give you, they'll give them some leeway, but, you know, Tavis Normandy can show up with zero day and everybody better drop everything. Cause in a 90 days, they're going to just release vulnerability about your, your product. Yeah. And, and I think that also a big part of wanting to fix these things is we've talked about before a lot of hacks sometimes take a long time to be discovered. And not only do you want to generally know, but you want to know soon, right? If, if there is a exploit on your website and, and someone can get into your internal network or get to your customer data, right. you know, if you can find that out, I mean, ideally you might find it out before it's exploited, right? A responsible security researcher finds it and then tells you, you remediate it. And then your customer data is never threatened, for example. Right. Um, if you don't have a program like this, sometimes people can be living on your systems for months right. or years, right? Or or just shelving that vulnerability for use when they're ready to, right? That's right. And I mean, that's the whole market for zero days. And there's a whole, you know, Rand just did a, a big sort of long, well, basically a book about it, uh, maybe a year ago, maybe a little bit longer. But but there's a whole market for zero days. And, and it's an interesting economic incentivization model that some of the more modern pen testing companies have adopted. So in the zero day market model, the better the vulnerability, the more you know reliably it triggers and the platform it triggers on. So the scarcity sort of equal the value of the vulnerability. So for example, a, a reasonably a good iOS bug uh, that can can infect an iPhone that no one knows about is probably on the order of five hundred thousand dollars. So it's got a value, a face value of that, give or take a little, depending on kind of who's buying it and what the nature of it is. But but it's a lot of money. So the researchers who work on finding these, and if you find two or three of those a year, you've got a small company and you work from home and you're doing okay. Um, it's super illegal. You're probably on a whole lot of strange government lists, but it, it's it's a market. It's an it's an economy. What what some of the modern uh, pen test companies uh, have done. Um, there's a couple of them. Synac was one of them. Is 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 understood that paying researchers to work on a penetration test by the hour doesn't necessarily incentive them, rather pay the pen tester on the quality of the vulnerability they find during the pen test. And what Synac found was they get many more hours out of their researchers. So if somebody's, if imagine you're even you're salaried and you're expected to work eight or 10 hours a day, uh, but you're incentivized by the vulnerability, you might spend, you know, you might stay up all night and work on this and come back first thing. And you, you know, you might spend your weekends and, and evenings and, and just be crushing this because you're finding vulnerabilities. And then what that ends up in is really high value return for the customer. Yeah. A big way that I looked at it was it was essentially taking, and I mentioned the kind of diversity of who security hackers, you know, so white and black hat hackers are the wide diversity. This looked like a good way. I basically, the way I looked at it was there will be black hat coming at us. And this is a way to have white hat hackers working for you. Right. Yeah. And, and I mean, I, I think, and this gets into the, you know, to the, to the, to the product, which is the, the, the ability to vet researchers reliably, the, the ability to um, make sure that whatever they're doing, there's some controls around it. 
Um, you know, some of the companies we looked at in the pen test and bug bounty report have very novel methods for letting researchers get access to the systems that they're testing so that they can be monitored. Um, again, it goes to the point of if I let somebody hack my system, am I really sure they've left it and they didn't put anything on the system uh, that I don't know about now? And, and can I be sure of that? And that's that's uh, that's a much more that's a difficult question to answer in some environments. Right. This doesn't uh, replace the need for your sim and situational awareness from your own direct monitoring uh, at all, but it, it can certainly enhance by getting a, a kind of more 360 view by definition. Right. Yeah. But, but for sure, uh, opening the door and allowing hackers to come in is not, you know, I think most companies have a, are pretty averse to that. And so understanding the cost benefits is it's an important, it's an important analysis to do. Um, the next thing that's really, really, really important is an internal process for this kind of stuff. Um, you know, just the uh, communication between somebody reporting a vulnerability acknowledging you've received it and then some sort of a uh, uh, you know a guideline as to how long you're going to take to respond it, it, just having something that simple because again imagine the researcher who finds a vulnerability in a piece of software running on his or her machine that makes their machine vulnerable well you know they're paying for the software they want it fixed or they're not it's but but regardless they are feeling you know uh, a little bit betrayed and they understand if they have this, this piece of software is being used by tens of millions or hundreds of millions of people. Now this, they, there starts to be a little bit of pressure on this reacher. They, the very least the companies can do is say, thank you for reporting this. The, the company will usually ask you a way to reproduce it. So the company can verify the vulnerability and then responding back and saying, we, we've taken this in, this is truly a vulnerability. We are going to fix it. So you need a process to do that. Right. I mean, even, even finding the right programming group in a big company to address the vulnerability can be challenging, right? I can submit a bug, but who, who's the dev development team that owns the bug? Right, and that communication itself can be, you know, an interesting point. There's, you know, again, because of the diversity of the community, uh, that security researcher who's reporting a bug might have all sorts of different expectations. You know, we already came up with a few different things they might be, they might be wanting or or needing, and the companies uh, who are going to be responding they need to be sensitive to that. Yeah. Uh, you know, one example I'll call out again, not to uh, dwell on the Zoom situation. But it's I just perfect it, timing. I it's... just thought it was very interesting that the security researcher who uh, overall, I would give him high marks from just my personal opinion, from what I saw of how he reported it, um, you know, and, and kind of the write-up on it. Um, but one thing that just caught my attention, um, you know, was that one of the uh, one of the features that he was talking about that he called to their attention, Zoom gave a very polished answer uh, that they wanted to keep their customers having the flexibility to either use this feature or not. And um, it was clearly a, a well thought out and he called them on it being a PR answer and essentially said negatively, you know, I don't really want to hear a PR answer in the middle of a kind of a ongoing security uh, discussion. Um, you know, which is a fair point. On the other side, I, that was one I had to see from both sides, which is the company is communicating with something that's, as it turns out, is ultimately going to reach the public. Yeah. And so um, perhaps a polished professional answer is the way to lead uh, in some of these cases. But I think both of those are good points and, and striking the right balance uh, is is really the way to go. You mentioned that with different PR firms, you might get a different response too. If you get to the point where you're going to a public, a fully public 
uh, discussion on, yeah. a, on, a, on a situation. Yeah, for an incident, that, you know, it's a very different type of public relations to manage a crisis than it is to get your latest feature into the Wall Street Journal. It's a different company, or it's a different, you know, it's a different, it's a different discipline team within in the, the company. If yeah, it's a, yeah, it's a different team. And yeah. and and not only do you need a process to manage communication, you need to manage to internal. You need to be able to manage internally about what, you know, well, so we've got a bug. Somebody needs to verify. Now that it's verified, there needs to be a ticket. So there's there a JIRA ticket open? Is there a help desk ticket? Where this can fold in nicely is with companies that already have help desk and ticket support systems. You know, this can run right alongside your, you know, when a customer has an outage or a critical severity bug and you have a way to measure those things and, and already work on those, like a vulnerability program can run alongside of it, but you still need to build it out. You still need to make sure that when the person who on the help desk or the person on the customer service team gets the report, they have a script and they know what to say. And then they have a tool that they can put the bug into. And, you know, there may not be a JIRA project for security. There just may not be. So maybe if you don't create a JIRA project, maybe you tag, you have some special tag that you that you build in to these kinds of things. Or you you know, you, you flag them specially so that they can be tracked and remediated and you have a process to report on them in an SLA and, and all those kinds of things. And then, you know, I think you brought this up too in terms of like rules of engagement. How, you know, how much money are you going to spend? And, and once you rank the severity of the bug, how are you going to sort of, you know, once it's reported uh, and based on the severity, you know, what's the incentivization program? Right. And we, we mentioned, I think, uh, for companies that are don't have active incidents coming through. Um, so some companies will start a program or they, they're already engaged in kind of ad hoc methods of dealing with these security bugs. And then they bring the program kind of retrofit as, as things are moving. Um, but for companies that aren't very active, they definitely need to be practicing these things too, because all this communication in the incident response team, if those muscles aren't flexed, yeah. also you'll find out people don't respond the way that you might expect, uh, even if it was written in a plan that everyone agreed to six months ago, well, that type of thing. Yeah, it's true. And I mean, in, in some cases, a, a, a vulnerability, you know, a, a bug bounty, you know, it may yield a lot of low hanging fruit that gets repaired quickly and it didn't really flex those muscles. Uh, you know, a pen test or an ongoing pen test or a, every, you know, a quarterly or, you know, whatever your release cycle is, th that kind of helps keep those muscles going. And that's something you, you can hire for and that you keep rolling. And again, it's a good differentiator. It's, I think it's important that they kind of have the same goals, but they sort of perform different functions. You know, yeah. the pen tests and the bug bounty, it's important to think about them very differently. I think one thing too, that again, might be obvious, but I'm not sure that, that we really made clear here for smaller companies that are getting involved in considering pen tests and bug bounties. Um, we mentioned sort of leveraging a community to do that. One of the things that can be very dramatic about this is leveraging a much larger scale than you have. So, you know, most companies are struggling to keep uh, an appropriate number of security engineers on staff. Uh, we've talked about, it you know, it depends on the organization, but mm. let's face it, most organizations would rather pay for whatever is obviously driving revenue than the security aspect, which does enhance revenue and in some cases can drive revenue by great reputation and great answers for security reviews and, and things like that. So security teams can drive revenue, but it's not as obvious as what are the core product of many companies, many organizations. For sure. So as a result, most security teams are not going to have dozens of extra employees, for example. And so the bug bounty and the pen tests can be used in coordinated methods, either together or you know alternating and this kind of thing, right. ideally ongoing, to really bring a much larger pool of individuals looking at your website or your, your public uh, Yeah, your ad, whatever you're making. Yeah, yeah your, your, your public footprint. Right. Yeah, yeah, I mean, another, another sort of interesting you know, uh, another use case around cloud is, is 
when you know initially I'd looked at uh, some different cloud offerings and I spoke to a CISO or CSO um, and one of you know my concerns was aren't you a really juicy target there's so much stuff up there isn't everyone coming after you well yes but we have a bunch of fortune you know 100s and some fortune 10s they've all pen tested us and they've all found different things and so now every company who uses us benefits from the work they did um, and so that, that's an interesting way to kind of think about cloud is that, you know, th there, there can be very focused specific pen tests if a large, you know, Fortune 10 company wants to go use some SaaS service and it's important, you know, public, private cloud, you know, some sort of relationship, they, they will probably get a pen test on that and get it done. And, and, and then you, the, the company that can't necessarily afford that, will benefit from, from those, those things. Right. And that's also a good example of if you can afford it, you'd like to do it before your next biggest customer or potential customer does it and finds out that there's serious problems yeah. uh, that they, they don't want to do business. I mean, right? you know, that's a really interesting one where, where I had a team that worked for me and we would routinely test things and find pretty significant problems. I mean, it was a pretty routine thing and not trivial problems, but real, real serious problems. And it didn't mean we didn't want to do business, but what would hurt the vendors we worked with is them taking a long time to fix our problems. Um, we had a particular vendor where we had millions of dollars embargoed and all the different leaders around the company agreed not to buy any of their stuff because of these vulnerabilities. And, and it took them many quarters to fix it. And then they finally did. And we were able to verify that the fix was in. So it ended up becoming a big customer. Um, so it isn't, it isn't, you know, the thing that'll hurt you is, is isn't the pen test. It's the, it's either the refusal to fix it or the priorities or, you know, th those are the things as a big company that'll hurt you. Yeah. And from the flip side, that's a great way to show how security can drive revenue. If you do a great job better than your competitors on yeah, that, you're closing you're the deal. You're going to win that business. They're going to come to yep. you and, and kind of move forward. Yep. Yeah. So the, let's get into a couple of the challenges. Um, you know, the, you know, how you messaging things is important. We sort of hit that with, you know, the, the, the crisis communications plan. I have always really thought it's important and, and implemented these to have a crisis communication plan in the desk. Uh, so that when something like this does happen, uh, you know, you have a, you have a, you have the right lawyers to hire, you have the right firm to hire, you have the right messaging, you know, it, it's this terrible thing happened, insert thing here. This is what we're doing about it. This is, you know, how long we expect it to take. Here are the people that are engaged on it. Have a plan that, that, you know, works with the community, with, with the rest of the world. Um, another thing is that in the executive sponsorship part, having everybody agree to the severity of a vulnerability is very important at the onset and the priorities that should be given when, when they're presented. Absolutely, and with both of these, I think a big part is to consider that when security events happen, one shouldn't think of them as sort of happening in this vacuum where it's like, okay, the security event is going on. If there are security events, they're gonna happen at the same time that other things are happening. They're gonna happen when your company has a big trade show or yeah. quarterly reporting or, yeah, or the executives are on an offsite or people are traveling overseas or sure. you know any number, you're doing a merger, any, any number of things. Companies are very busy and the individuals who work, you know, especially at the board level and the exec level, you know, they're incredibly busy. And so you need to know, ideally you don't wanna to have to pull those people out of meetings if you don't need to. Right. And then if you need to, you need to be ready to do that. Well, and they and, all, and they have to have a, an agreement upfront uh, because there's nothing worse than sitting in a room of executives and having three of them 
agree this is a vulnerability, we should do something, and two of them, well, I don't know how important this is, and I think we should just keep doing the other thing. You really need a clear guideline and a clear matrix of this has now crossed the threshold into SEV1 and we need to do everything, or this is SEV3 and you know we'll issue a workaround and we'll get a fix out, but but that stuff really needs to be agreed on at once because you don't want to hit that deadlock. That's right, and we, we talked about in our last episode having a clear message from your monitoring to have the clear story. And if you're in an evolving situation, it's really a combination of having, you know, good information coming from the outside, good information coming from the inside, and then having that fit into a clear definition, as you're saying, of, well, what would those things mean if- Right, if lacking, lacking ambiguity. And it's not, it's, not, it's not up to one person to say, well, I think, you know, you just, you've crossed the threshold and it's empirical. Um, the other thing, you know, we talked about flexing muscles. One of the things that I think gets taken for granted, but is an important factor is that flexing these muscles is important and learning from all these things is important. If you do a vulnerability program, a pen test, if you, if you have a bug bounty and you're, you know, every three to six months with new releases, you're getting cross-site scripting or, you know, a SQL injection, maybe there's some training that could happen that would prevent these kinds of things, you know? Yeah, there, there's a lot of security training that can benefit developers and others in organizations. It's it's really about, you know, how they, how they really are going about their work over time. Yeah, yeah, and flexing these muscles, I think, means looking at the trends and then applying the right security training. Like we see this one problem recurring. You know, is there a group here that's doing this or is this across the company or we do we need some libraries or some some way to link things that now sanitize inputs? To, you know, do we just have do we need a process that needs to be deployed for our for our for our programmers? Right. And that can sometimes be about the seniority of teams, but sometimes it's not about that at all. Just the busyness. And, and also there's all sorts of specialties, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, coming from web scale companies and dealing with 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 mostly that. Um, I tend to think of software developers of a certain type, but across all enterprises, there are software developers who are specialized, you know, closer to machine hardware and closer to, you yeah. know, any number of things where their sense of the kind of the modern web available security uh, exploits might be very, very different. And yet they still might come across that, you know, a good example would be how uh, web cameras become exploitable, you know, yeah. in the world. That's a security, uh, that's a device that, maybe didn't even consider itself a security device in yeah. any way. And yet that can be responsible for some of the biggest storms on the internet. Yeah. And I think that that's a good way to sort of wrap this up, which is, you know, these are in extremely valuable tests, whether, you know, whether it's physical security, you think you have controls around access to buildings and doors and perimeters, maybe those, they don't work the way you think they do. You know, you issue a badge in one place, a person has to walk through an area, can, you know, can they swap out the badge for another color and get access before anybody has a chance to look at it? I mean, there's there's all sorts of sneaky things that people will do and think outside the box when you believe you have a set of controls that work around controlling access to a database. You know, is there is there some hard-coded credential somewhere that somebody's using directory traversal and read? You know, is there is there somebody looking at something in a way that you're not? And these tests prove that. These tests show that, and they are super valuable. Um, you know, bug bounties can cost very little. Um, they, you can spend some money on, on high quality, uh, you know, high quality vulnerabilities that are submitted. Um, you, you can spend a ton of money uh, on them. You can hire pen tests that do simple things like scan or pay, you know, seriously experienced researchers to work hard on a specific application before you release it and know and find things. Um, there's, there's a ton of value, but understanding the values and the risks is part of this uh, is super important. And it's one of those things that companies should not, uh, companies shouldn't avoid doing, but they need to understand the risks. And fortunately, I think today, 
this has evolved such that there are a lot of good partners to work with. And that's what our report's going to cover. Yeah, absolutely. And maybe just uh, just a final thought from my side. You know, we talked a, a bit about um, targeting it. And I think scope is, for, for, for those who are thinking about this and maybe if they're newer and want to get engaged, is for each one of these, they can be intelligently scoped to start and then you can widen them as it makes sense uh, or launch multiple efforts as it makes sense. So. And, and even, yes, for very large companies who don't want to necessarily expose everything wrong with them, I think scoping things is very important for sure. I think that's it. Um, this was a good one. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Amit. Thanks for listening to Right Size Security. If you enjoyed this episode of Right Size Security, please check out the other episodes in this series. Simon's recent report for GigaOM Research focuses on advanced behavioral analytics and threat detection. To find out more about next-generation information security, download the single report or subscribe to GigaOM Research for future-forward advice on data-driven technologies, operations, and business strategies.